You're listening to That's Truth and Narrative, the show that cuts through today's media narratives and tries to find the truth. And now your hosts, Will and Gabe. Hey, Will, how are you doing? Pretty good, Gabe. How, how are you? I'm doing well. A lot of craziness going on in America. How about we start with the, the whole Breonna Taylor case? So, you know, I know that you're a, you know, you're, you're a libertarian. So what do you think about how this case is going from a libertarian perspective? Well, I got to tell you, first off, no matter what, human beings are dead right now. Breonna Taylor is dead right now as a result of the state prohibiting the free will exchange of an intoxicant. Okay, that's true. Got plenty of criticism to go around for all parties involved, but it's all woven onto the tapestry of modern prohibition. Now, you know my position on that. You know, the federal government does not have constitutional authority to enact prohibition. We know this because the 18th Amendment needed to be passed to prohibit intoxicating liquors. So there was nothing before the 18th Amendment, no Commerce Clause, no General Welfare Clause, nothing else in the Constitution authorized the federal government to prohibit intoxicants. The 18th Amendment itself restricted that authority to intoxicating liquors, and it was repealed with the 21st Amendment. Federal government has no authority to classify substances as Schedule One in the current parlance of the Controlled Substances Act. That said, this was a state raid. So this is state authority. This is state stuff. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Fine. States are allowed. States have the authority to pass stupid laws. And when the federal government... With, with federal prohibition, states almost have to because it changes the nature of who's in the business and all that sort of thing. Uh, that said, it, it, it's pretty doggone clear now that the grand jury testimony has happened and now that the investigation is complete. The press had been lying and BLM had been lying about what's going on with Breonna Taylor. The warrant was no knock, but it was administered as knock and announce. In fact, if it had been administered as no-knock, perhaps she'd still be alive. Perhaps her boyfriend wouldn't have had time to retrieve a firearm and start shooting. When persons are engaged in the drug trade and a warrant and somebody claims to be police at 1230 in the morning, they have a tendency to believe they're being robbed by persons masquerading as police. so there's a lot of questions. One, this was a coordinated rate. That my understanding is that the LMPD had originally requested five search warrants and were granted. The judge either the judge didn't sign off on the fifth, or they didn't have the manpower to execute the fifth, something like that. But here's here's, here's the thing. Why were there only three people in that raid? And why was one of those three people someone hyped up that someone had had to calm down in the hallway who had a history of hyped up behavior? And why didn't they do uh, a, a pre-entry surveillance? In, in many, most large departments, there's some kind of policy of having surveillance several hours at least on the apartment, on the residents to be raided. To make sure that there are children okay, there, or to know how many people are there, it's it's a risk management technique. Uh, there were. So you're telling me that there was. You're telling me that there were only three cops total on that raid. Only three. That's, that's my it. understanding. Okay, see that sounds a little fishy to me because I think like if you're going to raid the house of a of a known drug drug suspect, you're gonna come. I, I'm sure the police have a doctrine of overwhelming force. So three cops alone sounds a little strange to me. Right. And I, when I think about this, I try to go through competing hypotheses. I try to think about, okay, maybe something went wrong or maybe someone was dirty. Um, and, and I try to do that with all parties involved and see what fits the evidence best. Um, so number one, Brianna Taylor, her boyfriend, 
they're definitely th that residence was definitely being used as a stash house that was supplying the trap house. Whether the law enforcement had sufficient evidence of that fact or just educated guesses and lied in the warrant and justified it afterwards, that's the big conspiracy theory. But it is pretty clear that they uh, that that house had almost certainly been using been re-upping the trap house. Um, two, uh, so there's a lot of dirty hands there, but why did the police change the warrant from no knock to knock and announce? Now, if I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, here's what I'm going to say. They were serving four warrants simultaneously and probably didn't have the manpower, couldn't get the manpower in time, to serve all of them with the overwhelming force that was doctrine, to serve all of them with the appropriate, uh, um, what's the word, pre-surveillance, pre and so they prioritized, and they figured this one with the charming ex-paramedic lady was the least likely to be violent and had the least amount of traffic, so it was the least likely to be occupied, so if we have to skimp on forces, we'll skimp there. I'm just guessing. But then the question becomes, uh, why did you change it from no knock to knock and announce at 1230? If you're going to do a knock and announce, you do that very early in the morning at the time that the police customarily raid because they know you're have very little sleep. You're addled, but you're you're they're you're they know, you're, but but you're not they're not going to be confused with drug dealers. Uh, it, they knock and announce, they typically do things a little bit differently and things are expected differently on the other, other end and they're less likely to receive returning fire. Uh, so I, I, I wonder if they didn't change, they decided to change the nature of the entry because they had, because they had so little manpower. And I wonder if they decided to keep the time because it was coordinated to be simultaneous and they were afraid of get the, the occupants getting tipped off and destroying evidence, which brings us to a question of do they not have sufficient policies, sufficient oversight to make these deconfliction style judgments? Is this a case where this was a very complicated case? You had multiple being knocked uh, across several streets you had multiple warrants being served simultaneously did they do they need to, to play things out to role play a lot more uh, to develop better procedures for if we have to change this detail can we still go through the, with the warrant or should we should they have abandoned that one the fifth one the cur the the their their dealer targets current girlfriend who they believed was the money house they wound up not raiding her i can't remember if it's because the judge didn't sign off on the warrant or because for some reason they chose not to go through with the raid um but they have just canceled the raid on the house uh, but but these are questions. These are questions that are administrative. These are questions that are safety issues. These are questions that uh, let's let's save for the moment. Giving the police the out here, we're saying uh, we're saying that uh, if 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 everything was well intentioned and nobody on the law enforcement side was lying, these are serious problems of an administrative, a safety, a deconfliction type nature that need policies and procedures and administrative for the future at the very, very least. And nobody's asking these questions because everyone's too busy chanting, say her name and pointing fingers at each other. Yeah, this is true. So, you know, I think let's back up to the like the, the most bottom line of the bottom line here. Does this state, is it, is it in the state's interest, especially at a time like this, is it in the state's interest to be kicking down the doors of American citizens? So let's assume that, you know, they, yes, all the uh, drug tra trafficking is taking place. 
Uh, I, I, I have a hard time not asking the question, so what? Because right now we have, uh, you know, you've got, a, you've got a young girl dead. You've got, a, you've got one cop fired, I think. You've got some careers ruined. You've got uh, city streets in turmoil. You know, I bet the cops wish that they had not raided, raided the, that house. So, you know, is it really necessary for the state to be kicking down doors? Well, I, I think the nature of the state is violence. The state is is composed of laws, and every law exists in one of two forms. Either it, it says either if you do this thing, the men with guns who are trained to kill will, will visit violence upon you and make sure that you receive consequences at the hands of the state. Or it says, if you fail to do this thing, the men with guns who are trained to kill will visit violence upon you and make sure that you are uh, you, you suffer consequences at the hands of the state. Um, we have a lot of processes, a lot of procedures, a lot of different flavors of that, but those are the two main formulas for every law. That is what the state is. Um, so the question you ask, the answer in short terms is yes, of course, it's in the state's interest. That's why the state exists. The question then becomes, um, number one, should the state exist? And some people say yes, some people say no. The the ones that say no or seem to be growing in numbers these days. Um, and, and two, if, if you, you say yes, then under what circumstances should the state knock down these doors? And I, I think that this is a prime example of prohibition is not an, is not appropriate, an appropriate exercise of state power. I see. I see. So that's interesting that we're calling this prohibition, modern day prohibition, because the first prohibition was not effective. It did not work. It led to far more crime and um, violence in American streets. Well, I, I, I will admit that it was effective in one very crucial, one power, very powerful regard which is that alcohol consumption in the United States did decline by one-third during, pro during alcohol prohibition. So to the extent that prohibition was meant to reduce alcohol consumption, it worked. I would argue that the price paid to achieve that result was utterly insane. Yeah, so a one-third reduction in alcohol. So I wonder what's the benefit of that. I mean, that's that's good. One-third less people, but you know, really, so what? And I also wonder if there's any kind of real reduction in drug use today in America because of prohibition. I uh, wonder. That's a good question. Now, don't forget that under prohibition, beer largely disappeared. But liquors flourished because the economics of the black market, in the economics of the black market, you're, you're more strongly incentivized to concentrate the product that you're manufacturing and transporting. And we see the same dynamic in the drug markets today where um, soft drugs were over time displaced by harder drugs, where where marijuana was over time displaced by cocaine, um, the more compact intoxicants wind up displacing to a large degree smaller ones. And so the, the producers wind up making into the intoxicants stronger and more concentrated just so that they can fit more in a shipment so that the, or, or make the shipments harder to detect. Okay, so how about we move on to the results of this Breonna Taylor raid? We have right. another. Uh, uh, th there's we've one had another round of riot. Yeah. Well, there, there's. I, I'd like to go back because I, I think I've been giving law enforcement a, a lot of benefit of the doubt here, and there's good reason for that because the press lied a lot and BLM lied a lot. But I'd also like to point out that law enforcement claimed that they. 
the LNPD claimed that they knew through postal inspection that Brianna Taylor was receiving packages of drugs through the mail, but the postal inspector for Louisville says they did not learn that through his office. So the, the, they appear to have lied, unless that has been that has been cleared up somewhere that I haven't seen. It appears that even law enforcement lied, which makes me question what else is going on and how much credibility some of the conspiracy theories might have, and that sort of thing. It's I'm, all I'm saying is it appears that all sides in this case are dirty, have, have some <clears throat> amount of dirt in their hands. So there's no good guys in this case. That's the way it's looking. Um, it's very difficult when you have to get your information through a press that, that, that so blatantly and easily lies and manipulates these days. But it, it, there appears to be some really strong indications that there is nobody in this case that has clean hands. Which, which <clears throat> is the difficulty when everyone's pointing fingers at each other is that... Like I said, uh, the more mundane questions, but important and and forward-looking questions, like do we have insufficient procedures along the lines of deconflection and contingency planning for these types of raids? Do we need to make better procedures? Do we need to have better contingencies? Do we need to have larger teams trained and on call? Questions like that don't appear to be asked because everyone's too busy trying to point at everyone else's dirty hands and deflect from their own. Um, it, it might it might wind up being something as simple. Uh, it, it might. I have a feeling that underneath all of this, there's an issue that criminal activity in Louisville may have grown more complicated than what the their, the LMPD has scaled up to be able to handle safely, and we may be seeing one of those uh, growing pains. Does that make sense? Yeah, can you unpack that a little bit? So are, are you saying that the, uh, the local police just can't handle the crime in their city? I, I'm saying that, that this was a complicated network that involved uh, apparently at least five different physical locations. They were trying to execute simultaneous raids so that the suspects couldn't tip each other off in advance or it would be more difficult to, and or, or at least raids within a very short period of time in order to prevent the destruction or relocation of, of potential evidence or the flight of suspects. And I'm wondering if the reason they changed the warrant, they had two, they had no surveillance. They had on Taylor's apartment, they had two people there. They changed the, the, the nature of the entry from what the warrant, uh, from the, the level the warrant would have authorized. I'm wondering if all of these things just happened because they were short staffed they didn't have the properly trained personnel tr personnel trained for um a rush entry um uh, that they could call on in order to do four and five apartment raids simultaneously they didn't have enough people that they could reliably call on for um four different raid teams at once on one shift and so they had to make a decision at the last minute and they change. I'm wondering if they didn't change from no knock to knock and announce at the last minute because they had so few people and so little intelligence. But they didn't change the time because they were trying to make the whole thing. Um, they were trying to make the whole thing coordinated. And if it was going to be knock and announce, they probably should have changed the time to <clears throat> the next morning. Um, and, and I'm just I'm just wondering if they need procedures in place. They, they they lack procedures to make that call and to say, in this instance, you're authorized to call back up who are less trained in this specific type of entry, or in this instance, you uh, you should just forego the raid and just stick on the ones that you stick with the ones that you're, you're prepared for. 
Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that the, this was a very complicated thing. And it may, may, we may find out that this was the first time that this specific judgment call had to be made in the field, in that jurisdiction. It seems conceivable. Well, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that whatever whatever call they made, it was the wrong call because it ended, ended not only in tragedy, but it, again, convulsed the entire country in, a, in a, another week of rioting. Right. And so, like, if, in fact, let's say you're right, you're 100 percent right. And they just they made some tactical mistakes, some strategic mistakes that night. Well, wouldn't that wouldn't that justify Black Lives Matter? Because Black Lives Matter, obviously, they're looking for completely new procedures. They're looking for, hey, if cops have to make some decisions. They should make some decisions that don't end up in somebody's bed. Well, I'll tell you what, you make a powerful argument. And if I believed that that's actually what BLM was looking for, I'd be a strong advocate of the BLM movement. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who side with BLM because they believe that's what BLM is looking for. And I I think that that is something powerful to look for. Uh, The trouble with the whole Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter conundrum is look at the daniel shaver tape you know daniel shaver's um white privilege didn't stop people from calling the cops from him it didn't stop the cops from being terrified of him it didn't stop the the cops who responded from giving him impossible to follow instructions and it didn't stop the bullets from shooting him in that hotel hallway uh, it, it's you're right. This is about there are significant issues with police procedures. One of the issues I have with BLM is that their fundamental thesis is that it's issues with police addressing black people, and it, it's not. It's with police addressing all people. And when you when you turn it into a, a skin color issue, you, you turn it into you, you ignore the actual procedures and you start to think that if that that these things that these the, these uh, unnecessary deaths only happen to to persons of, of uh, with darker melanation, and so it's not about the procedures; it's about the color of the people being interacting. It distracts from the, the issue. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that one. Uh, you know, I think that Black Lives Matters, their first mistake is just to uh, to call it Black Lives Matter, right? Because there's American police kill a thousand citizens a year, and they're of all different colors. So I really... I really don't know why they chose that moniker in the first place. I think it's great for fundraising. Yeah, or or it's the fact that they have some other agenda, which is more than just, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's more than just uh, police violence. It's it's more about socialism. It's more about destruction of the United States. It's more about people who actually hate the Constitution and hate the fact that there's free speech people who hate the fact that there's a First Amendment and a Second Amendment, and they're going to do something about it, and they're going to do it under the under the banner of Black Lives Matter. And I think there's a lot of different people that are taking advantage of this. Of I that. agree. You know, I think those riots out in Portland, you know, you look at the, the crowd, it's 95% white. Like, who are these guys? What do they care about mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter? They're just taking advantage somehow. I don't know who they are, but they're just taking mm-hmm. advantage of I agree. Antifa aren't, and BLM aren't the same thing, but there's a lot of overlap. And there, there, is a, there are a lot of good people who show up to black BLM protests, who believe in the BLM uh, propaganda, and who want a better world. But um, that's not what the BLM leadership is focused on. That's not what the movement for black lives is focused on. When you look at their actions, there is no evidence that, that the, the, the BLM movement believes that any lives matter. 
when they when it looks like there's a chance that their uh, protests are going to become uh, quote unquote hijacked and become riots, they don't cancel them. They don't implement extra security. They don't implement protest discipline. They just keep going. And when that happens time and time and time again, I'm forced to conclude that they that the riot is actually the goal. When you have BLM leadership in Chicago justifying the looting instead of condemning it, uh, specifically calling it reparations, then I have to believe that the riots are, in fact, uh, the goal or at least a tool, and they're not an unfortunate hijacking. Uh, um, I've seen responsible protest movements. I've seen protest movements organized that, that, that... uh, care about life and the preservation and advancement of life and liberty, and th- they do things very differently from what BLM does. And that goes for the 1960s civil rights movement, and that goes for other movements today. Well, there's 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 an academic theory about that, and uh, it's not very popular because it it's. It's not leftist enough, but the theory is called, uh, what is this theory called? It's called therapeutic, therapeutic alienation, and it is by a black professor of linguistics at Columbia University. And basically what ther- therapeutic alienation means is exactly what you said. The riot is the goal. The anger is the goal. The protesting is the goal. There are no goals. There are no one who is actually trying to make things better. They're not actually trying to improve the situation. They don't even really want their demands to be answered. The riot itself, the acts of violence and the looting, that's what they're after. Because that makes them feel good and makes them feel better about whatever they're angry about. I... uh... Therapeutic alienation, you know, it's just that, it, it, you know, the people in our country today wallowing in self-pity, they don't want things to be better. And, 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 I, and they certainly don't want to, uh, they don't want to recognize the way that the country has improved. They only want to be angry and riot and be victims. Uh, <laughs> it sounds familiar. I, I certainly hope things aren't that hopeless. Well, there's a tremendous amount of research, tremendous amount of research that uh, says that plenty of people are just like that. Yeah. Oh, righty. So, yeah, the, the. So what do you think uh, about all the rioting and and, uh, you know, the, it's been basically an entire summer of unrest all the way up until September. Hopefully things have calmed down now. But what do you what do you think about that? I think people have Antifa a right to... What's that? Is Antifa out there is, you know, so we hear about the Proud Boys, we hear about Antifa. You know, who's out there? What, what groups are out there? What's going on? <laughs> I think people have a right to protest even when I disagree with them. And I think when you wait till nightfall, I, I think when, when uh, you start throwing Molotov cocktails and other incendiaries, it's no longer a protest, it's a riot. And I think it's possible to show up to a protest with the intention of rioting. And I think a lot of people do that. Um, I think condemning rioters is not condemning protesters. And I think for a long time, a lot of people have intentionally conflated the two in order to let the riots go on. I think when prosecutors actually prosecute, the, I think when, when mayors and city councils allow law enforcement to arrest the rioters, and then prosecutors actually prosecute them for their crimes, that the riots have a tendency to stop. And I think when the mayors and the city councils give stand-down orders and tie law enforcement hands and or the prosecutors decide to release the rioters, that's when you have 100-plus nights of rioting in a city. Uh, I think the rioting is very real. I think Antifa is real. It's a decentralized uh, group of cells which have their own Twitter accounts. They have Facebook pages, or at least they did. I think they might have been banned. The some of them sell what merchandise. What's that? What do Antifa want? What what do they want? Who are they? And what do they want? 
They, I think they want the destruction of America. They want to tear down American civilization. And replace it with what? Exactly. I... There tends to be a, a very... Antifa attracts left-wing fascists, uh, 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 left-wing authoritarians, and violent left-wing authoritarians. And there, there seems to be a lot of overlap between Antifa membership and anarcho-communists. Uh, it, it seems like they bring... You know, I... I a lot of the, the motorcycle gangs that, that will have their own uh, criminal enterprises to support their lifestyles, and they'll, they'll, they'll uh, occasionally enter into uh, shootouts or, or wars over turf with each other or whatever. A lot of them, some, their, their function in the end to their membership, the members that they attract are people who they just want to fight a war. They, they just, they don't want to live as civilians in peace. They want to fight a war. And when there's no war for them to go fight, they wind up finding the motorcycle club, um, the, the, the biker gang, uh, a criminal biker gang to join, because there they can be a soldier. And, and I think with the Antifa, it's just a bunch of people, uh, the, the membership that they attract is people of extreme left bent, who want a to be in a group where there is a socially acceptable outlet for them to just beat the tar out of people. They are looking for an outlet for violence that that that, that is socially acceptable. And they found a group where they can join and they can devote themselves to beating people in order to suppress political dissent. And in their group, it is acceptable. As far as whatever forces have created this in the first place and are helping to fund it, what are they after? My guess is some form of communism, socialism, some kind of uh, authoritarianism constructed around left-wing identity politics. Well, that's terrifying. <clears throat> what are the what are the counterparts on the right? So you, you've got uh, and people on the left. Who's on the right? <clears throat> well, you know, Proud Boys hit the news cycle this this week, and that that's a very interesting statement because the Proud Boys' uh, general ethos is they don't throw the first punch. And they actually stand up to defend things like freedom of speech. It, it's it, it's right in their 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 key beliefs. They they defend freedom of speech, and they don't throw they don't start the fight. They don't throw the punch. And if that's your corollary to Antifa, then it's very difficult to say that the right wing and the left wing are mirror images of each other. Because there is a fundamental difference between uh, a, a fundamental moral difference between aggression and self-defense. Proud Boys will go to where they know Antifa will violently repress political speech they don't agree with, and they will hold a rally to express political speech. And either law enforcement will separate Antifa and keep Antifa from starting a fight, or Antifa will start a fight and Proud Boys will finish it. That's what Proud Boys does. Where Antifa uses violence to insert the heckler's veto, Proud Boys says, no, we're going to create a space where people can speak. And if Antifa doesn't attack, there isn't a fight. And if Antifa does attack... Proud Boys fight uh, pretty strongly. Okay, why why are they accused of being connected to white supremacy and things like that? Where does that come from? Is that a media narrative, or is there some truth it, to that, it, or what? It is a media narrative. Uh, <laughs> there are 
there are proud boys of every race. There are proud boys uh, of every religion. Um, you know, in our first podcast, you asked me about uh, something Carl Rove said, and I said, yeah, it's, it sounds it sounds about right. And we, we talked about the accusations that he was dog whistling because of the venue where he said it. And the thing about dog whistling is there are these these rhetorical techniques that are used to shut up people who who are speaking from the right who are speaking uh conservatively uh people will use the calendar they'll say well this date happened some the day before that 200 years ago and therefore he's dog whistling or they'll they'll use the 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 location or something uh to to say there's some kind of dog whistle that only the left wing ever seems to hear. Only the people calling the calling it a dog whistle ever seem to hear the dog whistle. And it's it's a technique to avoid addressing the points being made. It's a it's a technique to debunk the point the speaker without ever having to address the unusual speech. And another technique that's used is just labeling. Well, it's a variation of it. Is just labeling the speakers as racist or white supremacist. Well, he's a white supremacist. Candace Owens is clearly a neo-Nazi. Ben Shapiro is alt-right. Ben Shapiro is so orthodox, he uses two different razors on his face, an electric on one half and a, a disposable on the other half. But somehow he's alt-right. And so the, the Proud Boys, with their, their, their uh, members of all races, are white supremacists because apparently our generation's David Dukes are taking their marching orders from our generation's Huey Newtons because apparently that's the way white supremacy works these days. Either that or the corporate press that we rely on for our information is spreading garbage lies. One of those things is happening. Either the next chapter of American X is going to show a whole bunch of Aryan bikers saluting their leader like, like some sort of weird Dave Chappelle skit, or our garbage press is lying to us about who these people are and what they stand for. <clears throat> so the president uh, told them to stand what is it, stand back and stand by, and the media is going crazy over that. The media is saying all kinds of stuff, like, uh, you know, they're going to be his personal gang that takes to the streets after the, uh, after the election. You know, there's all kinds of narratives out there like that. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of garbage assertions there. Uh, President Trump had absolute, has absolutely no idea who they are, or at least he did. Um, he has condemned white supremacy of all stripes at least 44 times in his administration. I saw earlier today someone had counted. Um, he has, um, and yet he continues to get asked the question. Have you seen the clips where Chris Wallace asked him the same question in 2016 and he condemned it then? Yeah, I've seen the clips. I've seen some uh, very enlightening clips recently where uh, right after the Charlottesville thing happened, uh, you know, they put out this just widely circulated clip where the president says there's fine people on both sides. But then if you back up the, the if, if you if you see the previous two or three minutes, he clearly condemns white supremacy. Yes. Before he says there's fine people on both sides. So it, 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 was, it was just an example of how untrustworthy our media is. Yeah, and that's that's um, a, a terrific example of where this technique of painting people who aren't racist as racist comes into play. Because the way that they got so much mileage out of that hoax as they did is by saying there was nobody there who wasn't a white supremacist. There was nobody defending the statues who wasn't a white supremacist. So by ignoring all of the black people, all the brown people, all of the Jewish people, everyone who wasn't white, who was defending those statues, by pretending the only people there defending those statues were the two dozen white supremacists, 
um, they get to they get to claim that he was that, that he was actually um, they get to to justify ignoring the part where he condemned white supremacists. Um, and that's that's part of the technique. If if everyone that they don't like can be labeled a white supremacist, then they can be dismissed. And you can't say, well, I was there. And they'd say, what, you were the only one who wasn't a white supremacist? No, you're a white supremacist. It, 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 it's a very calculated technique. And, and it's funny because after the debate, people started looking, news outlets started looking for Proud Boys to, to interview and started regretting it. And so now the, the word that's circulating in the press, pool, press, in the, the press world is don't give them a platform. Don't give these white supremacists a platform. Well, that that again, it's a technique in order to in order to sideline the speaker, so you don't have to address the valid points that they bring up. Because if you don't give them a platform, then nobody gets to see that the 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 chief of the organization is Afro-Cuban. Nobody gets to see the chapter presidents who are African American. Nobody gets to see the members who are Asian and Hispanic. Nobody gets to hear what they actually stand for and do. They only get the the narrative. Uh, when when you talk about the debate, Chris Wallace it really showed his bias there. He had no idea that there's a difference between critical race theory and and racial sensitivity. Uh, he conflated the two, and, and he brought up the Charlottesville fine people hoax. He was definitely alluding to it in that question. And then when Biden brought up Proud Boys, Chris Wallace just went along with it. Uh, he, he, th this is either Chris Wallace knew the lies that he was baking into his questions and into the exchanges, and he didn't care. He just wanted to get that out there. Uh, he wanted to tilt the, the debate in that way, or he didn't know. Please tell me the answer for a major cable news network anchor who is moderating a presidential debate, please tell me the answer that isn't utterly damning for him. All right, well, just tell me, what do you think of the debate? As a, what do you think of the, pres the president's performance of the debate? Because, yeah, uh, Chris Wallace was a little bit shaky. But overall, what do you think? Uh, I think the president wasn't, special, wasn't as prepared as other politicians might be. I think that's a trade-off the president makes a lot. Um, a, a more polished politician would have had some one-liners, some zingers prepared for this. Uh, wouldn't have been as stunned by the, the baked-in lies being asked from the moderator uh, and would have been more easily able to pivot. I think that President, I think that, uh, President Trump uh, alternate. Uh, he makes a specific choice in his style. Uh, he, he shuns being polished in favor of being authentic. Uh, and maybe that's also a conscious choice about time. Uh, the man just sealed his, what, fourth Middle East peace deal? Uh, he's obviously getting a lot done behind the scenes. Uh, so it, it, it's, um, I, I think that it is, he was definitely not polished. He definitely missed some opportunities. I think that there are some intentional trade-offs uh, strategically on his part for that. As far as the allegation that he's a bumbling off, I'm sorry, it was two against one. Um, when, when you turn it, it, the purpose of a moderated event is to prevent it from becoming a street fight. But once the referee starts throwing punches right alongside the guy you're fighting, it's a street fight. It may be in a ring, but it's a street fight. And from what I understand, he spent the third, first third or so of the debate, he didn't do a lot of interruptions. He didn't do a lot of that um, power intimidation thing that he does. But once Wallace started uh, jumping in and throwing Biden life preservers and attacking Trump, then it was a street fight and he, he responded in kind. When someone tries to, to shiv you in the kidney, you go back at him with a broken beer bottle for the jugular. <laughs> Yeah, this is true. So, uh, hey, what you know, the president has coronavirus, man. What's what's up with that? Does this does this change anything for the uh, 
for the campaign or what? How should we how should we think about this? I have no idea. I just saw a few minutes before we started recording that apparently he has been uh, flown to a hospital because his condition, his symptoms are worsening. He is, um, I think, I think the last I heard from his physical, he was just under obese, uh, which makes him higher risk. He is, I think, in his 70s, which makes him higher risk. Um so I, I wish him the best. I hope he recovers quickly. I wish his family the best. And um, I really don't know what's going to happen. Because if he passes, um, I don't know how long Taiwan's going to be independent. Just just for one example. Yeah, well, let's, let's hope that does not happen. Let's hope our president gets well very soon. He's got the best doctor. He's got the best care. So I guess we can assume they're going to take good care of the man. And he'll be back as soon as possible, hopefully. Yeah. I hope so. All right, so what else is on your mind these days, Gabe? What else is on your mind? What, what, uh, tell me something that excites you about what's going on in America or the world today. Tell me something exciting and then tell me something that scares you. Oh, my goodness. All right. Something exciting. Five million brand new first time gun owners in 2020. Wow. (laughs) You know what I think that means? I think that means there's no more. There's the gun control debate. I think the gun control debate is over because everyone has a gun now. And that statement right there is what scares me, because after the L.A. riots, when the rooftop Koreans had to defend their neighborhood because the police were called away to defend the rich people neighborhoods, uh, people said the same thing. Lots of folks went out and bought firearms. Uh, People believed the gun control debate was over. And then the assault weapons ban was uh, was it? I think I believe it was the assault weapons ban was passed. Uh, a year or two later because the movement got complacent. Well, I'm not sure any, uh, I'm not sure any politician would try gun control these days. You know, no, no one even mentions it now, right? No one even talks about it. So, I mean, you're right, but that was a different time and place. I think uh, things are hypercharged up right now. And I don't think anybody would dare to try to ban especially assault rifles that that so many people have i think that would be political suicide yeah well i i there's a movement afoot to start calling them what they are defense rifles and i think i'm gonna go with that but uh here's something else to consider i've seen a lot of videos online i have seen the um a lot of people have been exercising their second amendment rights in public uh defending storefronts um, marching to assert strength and intimidate um, uh, others. Uh, for instance, there was a black uh, African American militia group that marched to Stone Mountain, Georgia, the KKK headquarters. There is the NFAC, no effing around coalition. I can't remember what state they're in that does public displays. They, they open carry, they exercise their second amendment rights. There have been, um, uh, the McCloskey's in St. Louis when protesters were, um, trespassed on their property, destroyed their property, were threatening them. They, uh, they, they defended their property using their second amendment rights. There, there, there is, have, has been a lot of, of people protecting with their second amendment rights, uh, displaying in order to dissuade those who they, they perceive as intending violence. And I, I, I am very happy to see that all Americans are starting to embrace that the second amendment is for everyone. Uh, somehow this, this, this ethic has been spread. A lot of people believe that it is 
somehow this ethic has been spread. A whole lot of people believe that the Second Amendment is for um, it, it's it's only for white people, but it's for everyone. But the the thing that that I I also see when I'm looking at these videos is there is a lot of really poor gun safety. There are a lot of people sweeping each other with barrels. There's a lot of poor trigger discipline. There is a lot of people are just wearing gear incorrectly um, and justifiably getting mocked for it in the comments. But but it's it's we need we have never had a smaller percentage of our po civilian population who have served in the armed forces. We have an armed forces that is very small in terms of physical membership as a percentage of the civilian population because it's become so much tech, so technologically advanced. There are so many force multipliers. Uh, um, we don't have the same sort of cannon fodder battle tactics that we had in, say, the Civil War. Uh, so we need to, I think, reinstitute the militia acts and the militia practices. Uh, that were abandoned after the Civil War uh, in order to make sure that every American learns proper gun safety. Uh, you had that there was an NFAC uh, rally where somebody had a, a negligent discharge of their AR-15 and shot three people. There was a... Um, BLM, I believe it was a BLM protest in, was it, was it, I think it was down south, where one of the protesters was legally open carrying a revolver, and one of the people driving through where they were blocking the road got scared and pressed through, and he thought that they were being charged, and so he decided to shoot at the driver. Um he missed the driver and shot several of his fellow protesters. This is a case of people not understanding what the use of force laws are in their state, not understanding what constitutes an imminent threat in their state. So you have some misunderstanding there in the first place. And then he doesn't understand how to fire under stress and he shoots, he has a friendly fire incident on his hands. I, I mean, it, it's a colossal amount of, of fail. And if, if you, you know, before the Civil War, the the counties and the cities would organize regular militia musters for some basic training for people with firearms. Well, now that we have abandoned the ball and powder and we're actually using cartridges and we have different physics behind the weapons, I think it's more important than ever. We need to bring back those trainings that were abandoned. We need to have quarterly, one-day militia days for the counties and require people to show up and just get a day of basic training in basic, basic weapons handling, basic marksmanship, basic first aid, and maybe even a little uh, extra. You know, when the Cajun Navy w responded after that big hurricane in uh, uh, Houston, th the first responders had to hold them back because there was confusion about who would be liable if they had accidents or how they would address certain things. If you're in a flood-prone region, a regular part of your quarterly militia training could be responding to emergencies like that so that when you have these spontaneous Cajun Navy moments, you don't have to have your first responders hold them back. Hey, you'll be, we're afraid you'll be um, more of a hindrance than a help. You can let them go because you have had training for your entire civilian population. You know, your, your, your militia is your instant responders. They're not your first responders. They're the ones that are there when the shit hits the fan, who are going to pack the wounds and, and do what can be done until the first responders show up. And then when the first responders with the advanced equipment and training show up, your, your militia people are the ones who can be the grunts uh, uh, leveraging, they can leverage. And it's we abandoned this after the Civil War in part because the North was afraid 
that the 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 Confederates would use it to organize a new revolution. I mean, there was basically a 10-year guerrilla war during Reconstruction, and in part because a whole lot of people were really nervous that the 14th Amendment guaranteed that black people could have firearms and didn't want the government teaching them how to organize uh, militarily. So you had a lot of racist reasons, you had Reconstruction reasons, that the, the the old militia system was essentially dismantled. We need to bring it back because we need we need a common understanding among our people of what constitutes an imminent threat. When is this force authorized? When is there a duty to retreat? How do I respond without sweeping the barrel? If I show someone that I have a firearm, is that brandishing or is that a legitimate warning? We need to have everyone on the same page, including the 12 jurors who may at one point have to decide, did this person cross the line or not? We need to have regular militia training again so that everybody knows where the damn line is and they're all working with the same one. Well, I'd, I'd agree with you, and that's, you know, the, the plus side of uh, gun control this year is that there's 5 million new gun owners, and I guess the negative is that uh, most of them don't know what they're doing, especially when it comes to an AR-15 or something like that. I also noticed, you know, you watch these videos, these people walking down the street carrying guns, and I can just tell they don't know what they're doing. They have yes. no idea. Yep. It's um, now Kyle Rittenhouse clearly knew what he was doing. It looks like every oh, round he fired landed on the target. Well, he knew exactly what he was doing, and uh, you know, let's hope that he gets a fair trial and uh, a speedy acquittal. Because if if that isn't the definition of self-defense, I don't know what is. Right, and it goes back to the the, the um. The smears against Candace Owens, against uh, Ben Shapiro, against the Proud Boys, against all of that. Kyle Rittenhouse is the young Hispanic man who shot three white men who were trying to kill him because he was interfering with their ability to riot and set dumpster fires and roll the dumpsters towards uh, gas stations, allegedly. And he is being charged and he's being smeared as a white supremacist. Uh, and, and that's how you get people to stop looking into, well, why did he fire? What were the circumstances? You say, oh, he was just a white supremacist. He was just killing people because they were black. Oh, and if nobody looks into it and says that his arrest record reports that he's Hispanic, that looks into it and sees that, oh, everyone he shot was white and they're, they seem to all or mostly be felons. Um, and, oh, oh, my, was somebody braining him with a skateboard deck? Um, if, if nobody looks into that, if they just write it off because he's, oh, he's just one of those white supremacists, then that's just another way that you, you add the label and you deplatform and you end the debate without actually having to substance, substance, address substantive issues. Yeah, well, that's the left whole game, right? They uh, they put a label. They're all about labels. They label themselves so they can segregate themselves more and more, and they label others, and you're right. All they have to do is say, oh, he's a white supremacist, and then nobody asks questions. Nobody asks about why he was running away from a mob and was actually on the literally on the ground when he shot the second and third, third guys, you know? Those guys mm -hmm. deserve to get shot, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, the left and their control of the media is pretty, uh, it's a thing. It exists. Yeah, it is. It, it's it's weird. There, there's In a free market, you're supposed to have a mechanism where one press outlet would be incentivized to expose the lies of another. And to say, oh, so-and-so got this wrong. Oh, so-and-so didn't do this. So-and-so. So uh, but that seems to have been abandoned. There was a time when if one outlet said something that was incorrect, another outlet would crow about calling them on it. On it. Now they just echo each other. When did that change? 
you know, I think it has to have been. I think this is recent. Maybe it's just the last five or five or ten years for sure, but definitely the last five years because you know the entire media has caught Trump derangement syndrome, and everything Trump must be bad, and every everyone who doesn't agree, everyone who doesn't go along with the Black Lives Matter. You know, it's it's actually a, it's a toxic brew. It's Black Lives Matter. It's the mo- it's the modern feminist movement. The fourth wave feminist. It's the uh, these radical LGBT groups. You know, you put them all together. It's the Me Too movement. You put them all together, and they form this toxic stew that poisons our society. But the thing is, if uh, if you're in the media, there must be some. There must be a tremendous amount of pressure to go along with it. If not, you're just going to lose your job. So, and I think this is intensified since Trump was elected. So, that's, that's I, I, I do believe it's intensified since Trump was elected. But man, I remember the first time I noticed this was after the execution of Saddam Hussein, and that was like 2006. The um, the, the I remember the press outlets showed, you know, the the official video, you know, they didn't show the actual hanging, but they showed uh, what they claimed was up to the hanging. They claimed they reviewed the tape all the way through, and they showed everything that was relevant, and of course, for, for you know, ethical reasons, wouldn't show the actual death, but it was, um, it was sometime later that I was just late one night clicking around on the internet and somewhere, I, I don't even remember where I found the link, but someone had a link to the bootleg video, the one that caused all of the, the riots in the, the three Sunni cities in, in, in Iraq. And so I decided, you know what, something is off. I, I'm, I'm going to look at this. So I did, and the bootleg showed the execution squad chanting Moktada, Moktada, Moktada before the execution, just in the seconds before the trap door was activated. And it was, it was shocking to me because the American press hadn't reported this. You know, if, if you're listening to Fox news, you can understand them wanting to, the, the thing is, this is a huge issue because an execution, death by the state, is supposed to be the, this clean thing. It's supposed to be this sanitized thing. It's it's supposed to remove uh, the vestiges of clan warfare. There There is a pro- process. There are procedures. Um, supposedly one person, the people of one tribe or sect, are, are respected just as much as the other. That's that. That's the power of rule of law. That's the reason for rule rule of law. Is is the, the that's why Hammurabi is so venerated. Um, it is it, it there there's the state isn't supposed to be an organ of vengeance allied with one of the sects in society. And so when they chanted Moktada like that, that was a failed execution. Everything that's supposed to be powerful about the state administering impartial justice is wiped out in that moment. No wonder those the, the, those those people uh, felt so helpless in that moment. Um, that any Sunni in that country would have been terrified of of anti-Sunni genocide after watching that. It was a tremendous fail for the Iraqi government, for the provisional authority, for the United States government. And I, I could understand Fox News being tempted to gloss that over, but why the hell wasn't MSNBC making that 24 hours of coverage for a week? Well, that's not what MSNBC does, right? It's uh, I I don't understand. This could have been an ultimate own against the Bush administration. There were everyone except Fox was incentivized to uh, ideologically to to uh, to really go for that, to really hammer them with it. They they all had their 
And, and anyone not reporting it, whoever reported this could have really been hammering anyone that didn't. But it wasn't it it wasn't widely circulated. It wasn't something that everyone knew. It wasn't a, that was the shock for me is there is some kind of dysfunction in the press. It was the first incontrovertible evidence that I had seen on that kind of scale that shows there is some kind of in, dysfunction in our corporate press writ large that free mar- that that subverts free market competition and the dynamics that you you think would exist that that I believe at one time existed back in t- by 2006 it was bad that dynamic was badly badly damaged well, I, I think I think there I think there is competition but it's competition in a different way so instead of calling each other out they're just trying to be them. They're just trying to be more radical. So whoever gets to, you know, who is whoever is more anti-Trump, that's who the winner is. In this yeah, case. that's that's so weird. I I wish I understood it better. But it's, hey, just, uh, it's just pure, it's just pure psychology. Whoever can be the most negative, you yeah. know, they're 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 focusing on the human psychological that the aspect of the human brain that's attracted to negativity so they're just trying to be as negative as possible that's all i think there's a lot to that well but back to the white pill of the day five million new gun owners and uh racial minorities seem to feel more empowered to exercise their second amendment rights all great news now we just need to scale up safety training (laughs) Good point. Good point. Well, I think this was a great conversation. How about you, my friend? Yeah, I enjoyed this conversation this morning slash this evening. And thank you very much, Gabe. And how about we do this again next week, same time? Sounds fantastic. See you later, Will. Thank you for listening to this presentation of Truth and Narrative. Be sure to check out the show notes for more background on the topics discussed. Please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Send comments, suggestions, and questions to tnn at protonmail.com. See you, Will. Okay, see you, Gabe. Thanks a lot. Thank you.